You're listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I love to run, period. You can always run faster. Forever, you're going to feel something. You're going to run into roadblocks, but that's also going to teach you how to handle things in life. I don't think we want to be like rocks where we're not affected by anything. It's not maybe a physical thing, but it's a mental thing. There's like two voices in me, alpha and beta. Really trying to do is just keep moving forward. Every single runner knows what that means. My life has a purpose, and maybe it's not what I thought it was going to be, but. There were times when I didn't think I would be able to come back. There's a lot of people that had different gifts, and they don't use it. I think if we all use our gifts, we could do something really special, not for ourselves, but for our family, if we're really good. We can do something for our community, wherever we live. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's your host, Mario Fraioli. We are back with the third installment of our Coach to Coach series here on the Morning Shakeout podcast. And here to set this one up for me is my right-hand man, Chris Douglas. Chris, always great to be sitting across from you. Yeah, super happy to be here and super happy to talk about this conversation. I feel like I've been stoked for all of these, but I'm like extra super duper stoked for this one. All right. Well, if I can fire a question at you, why are you (laughs) extra super duper stoked for this particular conversation? Well, this week's guest, Stu McMillan, is just a giant in the coaching world. I mean, he is... I've heard him on other podcasts, really respect his approach. He's, I mean, I'm not the only one respecting him. I think he's a coach's coach. Everyone really values his insight. I mean, his company Altus is doing amazing work. Um, yeah, it's just a great one. So tell me how, how you came across learning about him. I know, I know you follow a lot of his work already. Yeah. So before I answer that question, just to give a little more bio on Stu, he is a sprint and power athlete coach. I mean, he's one of the great, if not the greatest living sprint coach in the world. He's worked with, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but countless Olympians, world championship medalists, Olympic medalists, um, professional sports teams. I mean, he is highly sought after. And he is also the CEO, as you mentioned, of Altus, which is a coaching education company primarily. And they do a lot of awesome stuff for coaches of all kinds and at all levels. I'm a member of their Altus Connect program, pretty minimal cost. I think it's like 15, 16 bucks a month maybe. And I have access to this massive library of videos of him and other Altus coaches, Dan Path, who is his mentor um, in the coaching world, just talking about all different types of topics from you know technique to nutrition to mindset systems thinking like all of all you know all of this stuff so i mean Stu is like you said a, a giant in the coaching world and i've been following his work now to answer your question for a long time he used to have a blog a long time ago we talked a little bit about it at the beginning of the conversation called mcmillan speed and he was writing a lot about topics mostly related to track and field and his work as a sprint coach. And I just always appreciated his expertise and his perspective. Fast forward a little bit, eventually started following everything that he was and continues to do through Altus. I'm subscribed to multiple email lists of theirs. (laughs) He sends something out at least once a week. Um, Always just really appreciate his insight on 
things that are technical. Sprinting is a highly technical activity. Um, you know, the latest research around um, a lot of training techniques, and I don't coach sprinters, but I think there are a lot of parallels there. But what I really appreciate about Stu and I think how it came across in this conversation is I consider him to be something of a philosopher coach, even mm-hmm. more than a highly accomplished technical coach. So this conversation, we don't talk about the X's and O's of sprinting, um, how to develop more power, strength and conditioning, all of those kind of things. It's very like philosophical discussion. And I think it's about an hour and, and 40 minutes total tape time. And it went just like that. Yeah. I mean, listening to it, I mean, it really it, that that really came through. I, I think his backstory is is really fascinating, which which you get into in in, in, the, in the interview. But I think you know his his concept around sort of this complex system. Mm. I think it's not only applicable for coaching athletes, but hundred percent, it just applies to everything. Yeah, and if I could tie Stu to any one philosophy it would be systems thinking um and we talked a lot about that he actually gave this great monologue i think in the middle toward the end of the conversation i just let him go with it and i don't know how long it was i'll have to to listen back myself but it was it was several minutes and it was just pure gold i mean that could just stand you know on its own it's just like the components of a system and how they interact and play off of each other and to your point i mean that is definitely how he thinks about coaching sprinters and working with athletes but it's also how how you run a company and how, you know, you manage a lot of other areas of your life too. Yeah. I mean, and I think, um, you know, this, this, this interview is just chock full of great nuggets, but one that I really liked was, um, you know, the, the, the notion that a coach understanding what's the coach's objective mm-hmm. goal versus what is the athlete's and how that can get muddled and how important it is to just make sure that you have your priority straight on like who you're actually working for. Yep. Um, yeah, I just thought like that entire conversation, I just really loved it. Yeah, just just clarity in, in general on who it is that you're working with, what the objectives are, making sure that you're on the same page and how you're going to put a system in place to go mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. achieving that. I mean, Stu's just a fascinating guy. I mean, to kick oh, off the conversation, we talk a bit about music. He was a DJ. Back yeah, in which his actually, day. you know, that's, that's a big miss on your part, Mario. No offense, but, you know, someone tells you they're a DJ and you don't ask them what their DJ name is. You know, what's the stage name? So, you know, I well, think I was thinking like DJ McMillian's maybe or DJ Gold Medal, <laughs> DJ Sprinters with a Z or something at the end. You know, I honestly have no idea. That was a huge <laughs> miss on my part. I feel like there was a lot in this conversation that we didn't get to. So I should try to have Stu back for round two anyway. And maybe that'll be the first question that I ask him. <laughs> I mean, I wonder his Instagram handle is Finger Mash. I almost wonder if he was like DJ Finger Mash. I have no idea. Could be, could um, be. But I'll find, I'll find that out and report back to everyone. Uh, he also, <laughs> we also have a mutual love of coffee and we touched on that toward the end of the episode. And then there's just a lot of philosophical coaching and systems talk in between, which I really enjoyed. I hope all of you listening to it take a lot away from it as well. Definitely. Well, before we get to that, should we shout out our sponsors? Yeah. Our sponsor for this episode is Tracksmith and Tracksmith longtime partner of the Morning Shakeout. We're heading into fall here. They just released their fall collections. A lot of great pieces in there. I've talked a lot on previous podcasts about the Brighton base layer, so I'm not going to go too deep into that, but it is the perfect piece heading into fall. They have a short sleeve version. They have a long sleeve version. It's a merino wool blend. It does not smell when you sweat in it. You can wear it on its own. It's also a great layering piece. I love the Reggie half tight. I mean, I'll wear the Reggie half tight year round, but you know, in these 
crisp mornings, even if I'm not doing a workout, usually that's my go fast short. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll wear that for distance runs now because it gives me a little bit more coverage, keeps my hamstrings and my quads warm. Uh, just a great versatile piece of apparel. There are a number of jackets in the collection, shirts of varying weights and sleeve lengths, all that sort of stuff. So if you're interested in checking out some new Tracksmith apparel this fall, go to tracksmith.com slash Mario. When you check out, if you use the code Mario New, that's M-A-R-I-O, and then capital N, capital E, capital W, you'll save $15 off your first purchase of 75 bucks or more. If you are a returning Tracksmith customer, you can use the code Mario Give, that's M-A-R-I-O, capital G, capital I, capital V, capital E, and you will get free shipping on your order and 5% of your purchase. You don't have to do anything. They're not going to charge you 5% more. It's just 5% of your purchase will go to support the Friendly House in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is pretty much where I grew up. I went there for after-school program, played bitty basketball, summer camp. I spent a ton of time there. They do a lot for youth in the city of Worcester, Massachusetts, where I grew up, and it just means a lot to me that 5% of all purchases using that code go to support the Friendly House. That's a beautiful thing. We've got a lot of other partners for the Morning Shakeout as well, which I would like to shout out here this week. If you go to themorningshakeout.com slash partners, they're all listed there. If there are any special URLs, codes for discounts, um, you can find them all at themorningshakeout.com slash partners. The first is New Balance. Um, you know, we half jokingly say that the 1080 is the Wait, that's official <laughs> shoe. Maybe it's not a joke. It is the official shoe of the Morning Shakeout. The V13 is coming out here in mid-October. I got my hands on an early pair. I really love it. Um, It's just a nice update. Very soft foam underfoot. I call that shoe the workhorse. You can really put a lot of miles in it week in and week out. New Balance has been a great partner of the morning shakeout. Another are my friends at Precision Fuel and Hydration. I use their entire suite of products. I mean, they have hydration-specific products um, that match your sodium loss in sweat. So you can really, you know, dial in with precision, hence the name, uh, what it is that you're losing. But they have a full lineup of fuel now, too, from gels to chews. And that's what I've used when I've trained for my last several marathons. And even now, I'm not training for marathons, but I'm trying to get better at fueling during a lot of my key workouts. Um, I may have a bottle of, you know, PF um, fuel, like the, the actual drink, um, which has calories, carbohydrates, and even, even some sodium in it at the track with me from running Mm -hmm. intervals. But I may also pop a gel in between intervals or certainly during a tempo run like I did this past weekend. Um, so check them out at the morningshakeout.com slash partners. There's a couple codes there. Um, if you are a new customer, want to try out their stuff, uh, you can do so going to that link. I think with that, let's get to this conversation with Stu McMillan. AKA DJ something. (laughs) All right, Stu McMillan, I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. We're going to get deep into the weeds on coaching over the course of this one, but I want to start by talking about two other things that I know you're interested in, uh, that I also share an affinity for, and that's music and coffee. And let's start with the music (laughs) piece of that. As I understand it, you spent a period of time earlier in your life as a DJ. So I'm just curious, where did your interest in, in music start and how did you get into DJing? 
Uh, yeah, first of all, thanks for uh, inviting me on. A uh, big fan of your work for a long time. So it's, uh, it's, I'm really looking forward to this chat and be really looking forward, hopefully, to getting to know you a little bit better as well going into the future. So it's, uh, Likewise. thanks again. Um, yeah, the music bit is, is, is something. It's funny, right? So I actually started my blog back in 2010. So if, if anyone remembers sort of my old blog, it's dead now. It's called Macmillan Speed or it was called Macmillan Speed. And um, what it was supposed to be about was food, music, and coaching. And those three things kind of were equal in my life. You know, like I really love food and I really love music and I really love coaching. At that time, I actually wasn't even a coffee drinker. Um, it, it, that, it never really, the blog never really went that way. It just sort of stayed in the, in the coaching world. But uh, to answer your question around the music, when I, I first moved to Canada from the UK when I was 12, and I moved two weeks into the school year and into, I think it was grade eight. So in grade eight, like everybody's got their friends and their friend groups already. And if you hadn't already had a, a friend group going into grade eight, you found one in the first two weeks of school. So I'm going in there two weeks late in grade eight, don't know anybody. This, this little, you know, funny looking British kid with a funny, funny accent. And, but... There was another new kid that also started on that day. And he was this Jamaican kid, also a funny looking kid, also with a funny accent. And it just turns out that this kid's father was a reggae DJ and he owned a, a reggae sound system. And his mother was a, a bit of a cook and became a chef, actually, and an op- ended up opening up a restaurant in Calgary. So I got to know him. He became my, my, you know, my, my close friend, my only friend to begin with. And I started hanging out with him and his family after school each day and developed this real uh, appreciation for, you know, Jamaican culture. I mean, as we know, such a big part of that culture is, is music and food. Uh, and specifically for me, for me, the music part of it. So we ended up just listening to, you know, this, this kid's uh, father's records a lot. And from there, this kid actually became my DJ partner. And we started, uh, you know, just DJing for fun about 1985. So I would have been like 16 or 17. Uh, started DJing a little bit more seriously, a little bit later than that. Um, and then I actually started a, uh, a reggae uh, radio show uh, back in 1998. And we were on the, we were on the radio f- until then, until when I moved back to the UK in 2010. And it's, um, you know, I developed a, a pretty large record collection of, you know, a, a few thousand records that are sit, still sitting in storage in Calgary somewhere. Uh, I hope one day to get back to them and, you know, at least at least be able to listen to it again, if not actually start DJing again back, you know, in my retirement, maybe. So we'll see. <laughs> so music's been a big part of your life then for a long time at this point. Huge part, huge part. Like at one point when I didn't have a clue what I was going to do, I mean, it was that was something I was thinking of doing as you know as a career in some way i didn't know what it would be you know i like i didn't and this is one of my greatest regrets to this day is i can't play any musical instruments and i really wish i could you know and i i should have done something back then but as as you know you're you're not quite as old as me but you're a little bit older so you you might remember that it was very separate back in the days right you were either a jock or you were a drama jock right or you were a band nerd or you're just a nerd or you were a headbanger you know and you know, never the twain shall meet, you know, and, and now it's a kind of, you can still be cool and be all of those things. And back then I was the jock or I was one of the jocks, right? And that was it. 
And you know, if you were a jock, you didn't go to band. You didn't go to band practice and learn how to play a trumpet or play the you know keyboard or guitar or whatever, right? So I, I really wish if I had to do it again, I, I would play a, a musical instrument. But all I had was sort of my DJ ability. Mm. And you know, I you know, you know, we we put on parties. I played in a few clubs. I had club nights every week for a few years, so on and so forth. But you know, I've I've it, my DJ quote unquote career probably cost me tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in all the records that I've bought and the, you know, the equipment that I've bought over the years. I've never made a you know, single cent from it, really. Um, but if I had to play it again, if there was an, you know, an alternative reality to ending up where I am now as a coach, it's probably there somewhere. You know, it's probably in the music industry somehow. Yeah. I mean, two things kind of playing off of that. Number one, I'm envious that you were able to follow that path as a young man and get into DJing. And even though you couldn't play an instrument, you were still up on a stage and getting to be creative and express yourself in that way. Cause like you, I can't play a musical instrument at all. And outside of doing stuff in my own office here, um, you know, with, with various sounds, I mean, I think you can see behind me, I've got the sound waves. That's actually to my wife and I's wedding song behind me. Um, I've always loved music too. And for me, it was instilled by my mother at a young age who loved all types of music. And I really latched on to that. And still to this day, I listen to a lot of music, wide variety of music. I love just sitting with it here in my office and trying to pick it apart, different instruments and how they play together, looking at the lyrics of a song and trying to understand what they meant to the artists at the time, maybe how they, you know, apply to my own life. And if I could come back as, as something else in a second life, for me, it'd be a musician. I would definitely, you know, want to learn how to play an instrument and work on that aspect of, because I, I look at it as a creative act, like that aspect of, you know, creativity, because uh, I'm just endlessly fascinated by it. 100%, man, 100%. That's, uh, you know, I look at, I've really enjoyed my coaching career, right? And I'm, I'm, close to 30 years into it. But I often wonder about the counter. You know, if I had to do it again, would I have done this or would I have gone the other road and gone into mm. music? If there's anything, you know, there's nothing else I would think about doing, but it would be that, you know, if I could have been, you know, a, a producer or a you know, musician of some sort, there's just, you know, it's, there's just something that's still super appealing to me about that. Um, but I think that we as coaches get to flex a lot of those creative muscles anyway, you know, and that's a kind of probably from a big picture perspective, what, what music or why music appeals to me is that part of it is, as you said, as I got to do it a little bit, you know, up on a stage and do some DJing and, you know, you're, you're being creative and responsive to what you're seeing in front of you and how, you know, the crowd is reacting and so on. And that's, that's really cool. Right. But I think what's cool about that is, is that creative piece, you know, putting, having a, an idea in your head of how this evening is going to go and what music you're going to play and what, what piece is going to follow what piece and so on and so forth. And then being responsive to actually what is happening around you and, and changing tracks a little bit, you know? So is that's, I really enjoy that, but that's also, you know, um, one of the things that I really enjoy about coaching. You know, yeah. that creativity, like it's, you really have to have a creative muscle to, yeah. be, a, to be a good coach. Yeah. There, there are a lot of parallels in that. Have you read Rick Rubin's book? The oh creative yeah. Act, yeah, the yeah. Way of being. Yeah, I mean, great. so I, I've long been a fan of Rick Rubin and a yeah. lot of the musicians that he's helped produce their albums and fascinated by his story. I don't know that he can play a musical instrument 
either. And he's probably the greatest record producer of all time, certainly one of the greatest record producers of all time. And for him, it's just immersing himself in it and seeing how it makes him feel. And I'm reading that book and I'm like, man, like the book's called a, a creative act, a way of being. And it's not meant specifically for producers or musicians. And you realize that these through lines, um, they go through coaching. They go through someone who might be a musician, someone who's going to be a businessman. It's really the systemic way of thinking about a particular pursuit that I think can be applicable across all these different types of domains. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. If there's anybody who you know, I would, would and I do, I'd, I'd, I'd trade my life with Rick Rubens tomorrow. <laughs> you know what I mean? I love that guy's life and what he's done. Like, I'm so jealous of what, what he gets to do each day. And I'm just, I'm fascinated by the fact that 40 years into his career, he still can't play a musical instrument doing what he does. Like, that just fascinates me. It's, it's, it, and also kind of baffles me in, in a way, you know, like if, right. if you, you would think, you know, and he's been one of the top producers in the industry since the 80s. You know, I mean, he's been doing this for a long, long time. How does he not learn how to play an instrument just by chance even, you know? But, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's an awesome story. And I think that's, that is, by the way, it's, it's a great book um, on creativity. I really enjoyed reading that book. Yeah, likewise. Uh, two more things off of that. One, I think in your next act, if that is what you want to do, you got to start just by growing your beard a little bit longer so that you can get yourself on the same level as, as Rick. I'm looking at you right now through the screen. Our listeners can't see you, but I mean, I think you need like another four or five inches on that before uh, you get to to that level. And the second piece of that, um, as you were describing that, made me think of a lot of coaches that I know and respect. I mean, top of mind for me right now is the last guest that I had in this series, a guy by the name of Don Swartz, who's my wife's master's swimming coach. And this is a guy who never swam competitively in his entire life. And in the early 1970s, he revolutionized swim training at the time. I mean, the prevailing thought was just pile on yardage and get really, really strong. And he was doing that because that's what everyone else was doing. And he saw that his swimmers were, you know, only improving by, you know, tenths of a second, half a second, that sort of thing. And he was talking to a, a track athlete, ironically enough, who asked him if he did cycle training. He's like, cycle training? Like ride a bike? He's like, no, no, no. Like cycle hard workouts uh, and really tough days with like very easy days and just balancing things out in that way, which I mean, now is just sort of common knowledge. I think in um, a lot of coaching circles at the time, certainly in swimming, it was pretty revolutionary and he saw huge results right away. Coach the guy to a world record, coach the guy to the first sub four minute, um, 400 meter swim, multiple Olympians and people are knocking at his door. How do you do this? I'm like, this is a guy who like never swam competitively in his, in his entire life. Um, you know, a, a mentor of mine in previous guests' podcast, Frank Gagliano, who's one of the great middle distance coaches of all time. I think 18 Olympians and to, to this day, like has never run a distance race in his entire life. Uh, he started as a, a football coach and started coaching track because they told him if he stuck with that for a few years, when the school had a football team, they would, they would eventually give him that job. So it, it's just interesting. Um, those parallels, which I hadn't really thought about until you just described it. Yeah, that's uh, that is really interesting. Um, I wonder if I'd, if I could talk to those guys, if they, because, you know, when you come from the outside, 
you've got new eyes, right? you've got fresh mm-hmm. eyes, and you're looking at something in a way that all of the people within that system won't necessarily be able to see it because they're within it. You're, and you're looking at it from, from the outside, from without. And that's where generally so many of these sort of paradigm shifting moments right. occur, right? Is from people that don't necessarily or haven't necessarily been working within the system for a time, which was sort of my own uh, career arc as well, right? I, I wasn't a track and field athlete. I wasn't a sprinter. I wasn't a, a power speed athlete. I was an athlete, not a very good one. Uh, stopped playing soccer, got into track and, and I ran track for maybe a year, but I was terrible. But what I was, what I was able to do was looking into the sprinting world from outside of it and see, yeah, this, this kind of makes sense, but this doesn't, this doesn't, this doesn't, this doesn't. But then, you know, then you're in, inside of that system, and inside of that sprint world for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years or whatever. And you can, can become, if you're not careful, if you're not purposefully, actively continuing to place yourself outside of that system and try to relook at that system with fresh eyes, you can become part of it and just fall into through momentum what the system ha- was or ha- how it was pr- prior to you actually entering it, right? Which I find myself falling into that trap all the time. And I still do to this day, right? It, it, it requires, when you're, when you're fresh, when you're new, it's just ignorance. And ignorance there is your best friend. But when you're w- within it, you're no longer ignorant, right? So it's, you're always thinking about, you know, it, it's because now it's, you're within it, it's harder and harder for you to see it with these fresh eyes and there's no ignorance anymore. If that makes yeah. any sense. No, it makes, it makes a ton of sense. And I've had the same experience myself. And that's why in some of my coaching work, I'm working primarily with amateur athletes. I have some that are competing at an elite level. And to the point that you just made with a lot of those athletes, I don't say I take things for granted, but I'm, I'm caught in this system in this way of thinking. But, you know, oftentimes, especially with the group I work with in San Francisco, I have a lot of people who are new to sport. They might be stepping on a track for the first time. They don't speak the lingo. And over the last few years, I've realized that it's important for me to continue to work with that type of athlete because it keeps my eyes open to things that I've taken for granted. Um, and it helps me to just kind of reinforce and sometimes question why I'm doing things or why I've done things a certain way for the last five years. And is there a different way that, you know, I could do this? And, um, this will get into something I definitely want to talk to you about, you know, a little bit later, which is, um, your KTG framework, things that you know to be true, things that you think are true and things that you like guess are true and just, you know, sort of how that, you know, plays in and we'll, we'll get there, but while we're on the topic and I do want to get to the second part of my first question about coffee, but as an athlete, you mentioned how you did track and field for a year, but what was your introduction to sport? How did you come up in it and what place did it hold in your early life? Uh, yeah, it was a really big part of my early life. So as, as I said, I grew up in the UK. Um, my father was very athletic. So he was, uh, you know, what would maybe be called a semi-professional soccer player. Uh, also played badminton for the county and was a long-distance runner. So through every, you know, from the time I could actually run and keep up with him somewhat, I would run every day. So this was from maybe the age of six or seven. I'd be out there running with my dad every night 
And we were training for the Manchester Marathon. I remember this in 1981. It was the first Manchester Marathon. And uh, we had no idea what we were doing. We'd just go out and run. And he had no idea what he was doing. But we just, you know, all it was then is we'll just run a little further each day, you know, until we can run a marathon. And then we ran the 1981 Manchester Marathon. Um, but because of what he was doing, you know, athletics was a very important part of, of his life. It became a very important part of my life. Um, but also academics was a very significant part of his life as well. He was a, uh, an engineer, uh, a civil engineer. So it was like, it's, I was, I was doing two hours of homework from my father every night on math and all these other things. Uh, while I was growing up, in addition to what I was doing at the school as well, right? So it was that I was always in this very sort of athletic slash academic household. And then we, when we moved to the UK in 1981, um, you know, he's no longer at that level of sort of, you know, trying to pursue something at a high level. It became more participatory for him as, a, as, a, as an athlete. Uh, he, started, he started coaching. So in 1981, when we moved, he became this coach of a, of a, of a local soccer team in Calgary in Canada. Uh, and a couple of years later, I started becoming one of his assistant coaches. So he became like the coaching coordinator of this big club. I started coaching as, as a 14-year-old. I started coaching this 11-year-old or under 11 uh, team. And then uh, that, that sort of started my fascination with, with that part of things, right, with uh, trying to understand how I can help athletes become better at at what it is they want to do, um, you know. So, and by the and all the while, still having designs on having my own professional career, right? And I was I was a soccer player. I couldn't really do anything else well. I was, you know, I was still a pretty decent runner. Uh, I ran ten k's and stuff all through being a um, you know a teenager. Um, you know, I played basketball, but I wasn't a very good basketball player. I was one of those guys who was pretty good at everything, but not outstanding at anything. The, the best thing that I was, 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 was at soccer got to a fairly high level, but not good enough to have a career in it. Um, I often tell people that my greatest talent in, in sport was figuring it out really early that I wasn't talented enough to have, you know, a career in this and, but I really like it. So how do I make a career in this? So I moved into coaching really early. Right. So it's uh, especially in track and field. Like I is, I was a terrible sprinter, man. I was a really fast soccer player, but I found out really quickly that, I was a really fast soccer player, but not a fast sprinter. And then, uh, but I was really interested in speed and power and, 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 and helping others to become fast or even trying to help myself to become fast. So I uh, dove deep into that and, uh, and just got into the coaching arena pretty young. You know, I was, I was 22 or 23 when I started thinking about having this as a, you know, as a legit career rather than, rather than something else. Not to go off on too much of a tangent. And I don't know you that well. I've read a lot of your writings. Um, we've corresponded over email, but it seems to me that when you have an interest in something, as you just described, you just dive deep into it, whether it's music, coffee, which we're still going to talk about, coaching, track and field, whatever it happens to be, you seem to have a tendency to just go as deep down the rabbit hole as you can stand. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's accurate. Yeah, it's a bit of a problem. Why is it a problem? <laughs> it, well, it can become a problem, right? Because it can become a little bit all-encompassing. Mm. And then it's um, – and then you get lost. Anytime you go deep, you know, the deeper you go, the, the, the more 
separate you are from the from really the true reality of things, right? You're just mm-hmm. going super deep into this one specific domain. You go deeper, 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 and you're just looking around, say, okay, where am I? And now you going down is easy. Getting back out of that rabbit hole is the hard bit of finding where all of this stuff that you've just learned about fits in the entirety of the system and your your own you know uh, previous priors. I mean that's the that's the difficult bit, right? The learning bit's super fun. It's really easy. I, I love doing that. Like it's something that fascinates me. I'm going to learn as much as I possibly can about that as I can, right? By as you said, diving into those those rabbit holes. Uh, sometimes the frustrating bit is then how does this fit? And often what I do is, you know, depending on how busy I am, and this, this is seemingly happens more often now, is I go deep into this rabbit hole and then I just, all right, I'm just going to hop out. You know, I, I, can't, I can't take this anymore. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And that, that's it. And it just, okay, that's a rabbit hole that I went down and I did all this learning and I haven't really understood yet how to apply all that learning into everything else that I'm doing. Maybe I'll jump back into that rabbit hole at some point, but I've got so deep into it and it's taken me away from the reality and the practical reality of all the stuff that I'm actually doing that is too far away. And, this, and it's, it's just it's too much of a, of a chasm between the two things to be able to build this bridge between the two of them. So that's uh, for some reason, that's becoming more frequent for me now right i used to be able to just you know dive into rabbit holes uh and then okay this is how it fits come back out figure it all out dive into another one yeah this is how it all fits dive back out and so on and so forth but it's that's becoming harder for me so i guess that's why that's why i say that's my answer to your question there is that sometimes it's really challenging and really difficult yeah that kind of answers my next question which was going to be have you gotten better at getting out of those rabbit holes as you've gotten older but since you answered that the way that you did I guess how I would reframe that question is say, have you just gotten better at identifying when you should get out of a rabbit hole versus when you should go deeper and try to pull as much out of it as you can? Yeah, I I, I think um, maybe all of that, right? So it's, it's, I've probably got better at getting out of them, but the ones that I'm going into are way more specific than the ones I used to go into. Mm. So, the, you know, the, uh, the connections between these rabbit holes are way less obvious now. So I might go down one with not really an, an understanding of how this might connect to other things. Maybe I've got a theory in how it connects. And I go deep, 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 deep. And I just don't ever find that real, that connection, right? Oh, that was really interesting, but it's, I'm so far away now from where, where I was thinking it was going to be that I just got to jump out. Whereas... Prior to that, you're going deep into things that you there's an obvious connection between this and everything else that you're doing, and you just got to learn more about it. You know, that's for example, just let's take, take a really you know simple one: nutrition. Right, that that's important for coaches to understand at a pretty basic level, at least, just basic general nutrition. So let's dive down this nutrition uh, rabbit hole and you know learn as much as we possibly can about nutrition for power speed sports. And we'll do, you know, we may spend two or three months down there and we come back out. And at no point are we, when are we in that rabbit hole, are we asking about where the relevance is to what we're doing? You know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. therapy or, you know, mental resilience. Or you pick, you pick the, your general one where there's obvious connections. Now those rabbit holes are, are 
sometimes many generations away because you know the other stuff is kind of obvious at this point and you i think as you as you grow and as you learn and as you um you know your knowledge base expands you just become a little bit more interested in more specific stuff that may not have as obvious connections to the stuff that you already know and they may not be connected you know what i mean it's it's the where i get so much of my um I guess just fun from now, like what I'm really, really interested in is that is finding these non-obvious connections between things like that's That's really what interests me now. That's interesting to hear you say that because in my experience, which is, is very similar and I'm not as old as you, I don't have as much experience, but you as I was old. Yeah. in yeah. just very straightforward terms, but <laughs> As I was coming up in coaching, and I don't have academically a science background. I majored in philosophy and psychology. So as you just described, nutrition or physiology, recovery, whatever it happens to be, I think if you're going to be a a coach of athletes, you need to educate yourselves in those areas in some way. So if you didn't get it coming up through school, like, you know, you have to be self-taught in a lot of ways or go to courses, whatever it happens to be. And as I was coming up as a coach, I mean, like you, I would go down these rabbit holes on training theory or, you know, on recovery or on nutrition. And when I would go down these rabbit holes, I would try to see how I can connect that to these other ones that I've dove down and make it all come together so that I could be a better coach. And Fast forwarding a few years to now, I still go down rabbit holes like you. I'm just, I think I'm just wired that way. If I get interested in something, I want to learn as much as I can about it. And what I've had to be very intentional about is going down a rabbit hole and saying, I'm not trying to tie this back to coaching. Cause I'd say that was most of them that I w- was going through over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. They'd be coaching related rabbit holes and how can I connect all of these dots, um, you know, so that I have a, a greater body of knowledge. And more recently, definitely don't know everything and I'll still go down coaching related rabbit holes, but I'll, I'll do it, you know, in music, like I just described or photography, which is an interest of mine. And I don't have the intention of trying to connect it back to coaching and what I do as a profession and how I I make my living. Like this is just for fun, but I'd be curious if this is your experience At, at some point without even trying to, I'll find something in that. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely not trying to that. I'm like, Oh, this is going to inform my perspective and help me to be a better coach. And that could be, you know, for instance, using photography as an example, one technique that I learned was the power of constraints, which I think is something that you could talk about in any form of creativity, but it's like, give yourself constraints. You're only going to use, you know, one specific setting, or if you're editing, you're going to give yourself like, you know, two or three moves and see what you come out with, because that's going to force you to really think about what it is that you're trying to capture and like how you want to present it afterward. And I was like, oh, that's just like, you know, really fascinating. And then the wheels start turning And I'm like, oh, I wasn't going here with the intention of trying to learn a new skill for coaching, but I'm like, I can apply that, you know, this constraint-based, you know, type of thinking from this creative pursuit, which I think coaching is very much a creative pursuit that, you know, is going to help me to become a better coach, make better decisions and look at things through like a, a figuratively different lens. 
Do you think that is a net positive, the way in which your brain filters that information into coaching or a net negative? Do you wish that it didn't happen? That's an interesting question. I can't easily identify any negative repercussions of that, but I also wish sometimes that I could just put a wall up and separate the the two things. And I think what I'm trying to become better at accepting is maybe I just can't do that or don't need to, uh, or it's just maybe because you know this is how I've wired myself over the last couple of decades. It's maybe not possible at at this point. I mean, that's just something I you know I definitely wrestle with. Yeah, it's it's I I have the exact same disease. <laughs> and, and and have had that disease for a long time. It's impossible for me to read almost anything without it going through that coaching filter and me trying to pull something from it. And I don't actively do that, right? You read fiction? Well, that's, that's where I was going to get to. Okay. That's why I actually now actively seek out more fiction that I, mm. I know it's going to be harder for me to you know, filter that, this out into, okay, how is this relevant to coaching? How is this going to make me a better coach? How is this going to help the athletes that I'm coaching? So on and so forth. So I spend a little bit more time now uh, reading fiction, but even there, you know, there's, there's stuff that you, that you can't help it. As you said, you can't, it's not like you're not starting to read this book about music or, you know, Anna Karenina. Let us, let me see if I can get some coaching nuggets from from uh, Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or whatever. You know, it's you're just reading it because you want to try and enjoy it. But those coaching nuggets come. You can't help it, right? And it's, it's as I said, it is a disease for sure. And I, I often wonder whether it is for me a net positive or a net negative. You know, I wish sometimes that I could just put, as you said, that barrier in between the two, where you can just separate mm-hmm. right, and just go on. Like I just want to learn about this, and without. Anything that's going to pull me or tug me back to how this applies to what I'm doing. Yeah. I just think that people like you and people like me and many, many other people who are, you know, maybe experienced or, you know, not necessarily expert in what they do, but really are driven by what they do to the point where, you know, the, the, it's the separation between what they do and what they are is, you know, sometimes blurred, you know, it's, it's harder, you know? And maybe that's one of the reasons why people become really good at what they do is because that separation is a little bit more blurred and because we automatically filter things into what it is. You know, from our perspective as, as coaches, for other people, they'll be taking other lessons for what they do, right? The photographer will be reading a coaching book and take and right. glean photography insights from that coaching book, right? Just the opposite. So, I, um, yeah, I, I, that's something I, I think about quite a lot, actually. So it's funny that you said that. Yeah. Uh, going back to your upbringing as an athlete, you played soccer, dabbled in other sports, a little bit of track and field. You mentioned how you sort of got your start in coaching by helping out your dad at a relatively young age. But aside from that, did you have any coaches as you were coming up as an athlete in any sport that had a profound impact on you and you recognized it at the time and it still sticks with you to this day? Yeah, it's funny. I don't, I don't, I, I have, um, you know, you so my dad was my dad. He wasn't my coach. You know what I mean? Even though he was, I was coached by him for maybe a couple of years. He's, I was never my coach. You know what I mean? So I didn't glean any coaching insight from him. 
any track and field coaches or coaches of, in soccer or whatever other sports that I was playing. Never, never. I, I got nothing from them, right? So all of my insight was from me just trying to figure it out kind of myself and seeing what other coaches do and, uh, you know, not really understanding or knowing why I didn't really, that didn't really appeal to me, but knowing that it just didn't appeal to me. That's not, that's not what a good coach is. You know, not not necessarily knowing what a good coach is, but I knew it wasn't that necessarily. Um, so, yeah. And, I, you, you know, the older you get. So now I'm, you know, late teens and early 20s and, and, and that and I'm still not a serious, quote unquote, coach yet. But you're getting into a time in your life where you're getting more experiences with other coaches. So you're seeing what they do and what they are and how they how they uh, how they act as coaches. And for me, um you know, it was all, okay, that's not how you coach. This isn't what, if I'm going to be a coach, it's not that. That's, this, is, this isn't for me. And my coaching um, education came just from the actual act of coaching and figuring it out as I was coaching and then working alongside a bunch of other coaches, like young coaches, and working together to try to figure this out. And then through the, you know, I think again, I was, I was 25, I think, w- before I met Dan Path. So prior to that point, it was just me, just me and a bunch of friends trying to figure out what this coaching is. All right. And we just, just reading books and reading journals and stuff and going to the library. And I mean, there's no internet to, to figure that out. It's just, all right, look around. Okay. There's no good coaches here. So that's not what we're going to do. So what is that? So, you know, you know, you're reading old sort of Russian stuff or old DDR stuff or whatever is in, as I said, in some journals. And then I met Dan and that sort of just changed everything. It gave me, all right, it gave me a beacon or something that I could do, sort of direct my learning towards and my future career towards. Well, that is a good coach. That's what I want to become. This and how he does things is how I want to do things. So it gave me now like a real much more clear uh, direction in which to travel where prior to that I was just, you know, just really just walk, walking around kind of aimlessly. Before we dive into your relationship with Dan, which is on my list of things I definitely wanted to talk to you about, what did you observe in those other coaches that made you say, no, 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 that's not coaching. I don't think that's how it's done. Yeah, it's this is something that, that you know, because you don't really know then, right? You just You just know – that's not it. And you don't really know why it's not it. You just, mm. ah, that's not it. It's just not for me. But in, in retrospect, when you look back, you know, coaching can be a really, really easy job if you want it to be. It, it honestly can. And there's, a, I would say, a vast majority of coaches, it's a pretty easy job for them. But it can also be one of the hardest jobs on the planet. And I think when I was, when I, you know, when I was younger, there were many coaches around that this is just an easy job for them. And that's fine. They weren't, they weren't necessarily even professional coaches, right? They were just a parent or whatever and just coming and running a practice. And they, you know, read a book about what a practice should be. And, all right, and they're just directing athletes to do things and just sort of reading off this list. And then they go home and they've got, you know, it says coach on their back. So they're a coach, but they're not really coaching really. Right. So it's from that perspective, it's just, that's super easy. You know, just holding a stopwatch, videoing, videoing some stuff, yelling out some times, counting some reps, you know, that, that can be, if you want a coach, right? And many, as I said, many coaches are just doing that. 
as I said, many, many coaches are not professional coaches and that's okay. But in, in, in my experience since then, there are a lot of professional coaches that coaching is a pretty easy job for them too. Uh, on the other end, coaching, if we really, and this is probably something we'll get into and talk about, it can be a super complex, creative endeavor that you spend your life trying to figure out how to do this properly. And that, that was always sort of my mindset from the get-go is why, why are people doing this? Why should I do it this way and not that way? How do I do this better? And so I had all of these sort of philosophical questions about what coaching could be as a, as a profession or vocation, whatever. And that it just, it was just for whatever reason with me from an early age. Um, so yeah, it, it's, 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 I guess that like it's, I, I didn't know what I didn't know at the time. I just knew that that wasn't it. Yeah. So let's dig into that a little bit. How would you define the role of a coach in very broad strokes? Yeah, it, this changes for me a lot. Um, and I'm still, this is, I got working definitions and working thoughts on all of the things that I, that I think about. So it's a, anything that I say from here on in, I reserve the right to change my mind, uh, I in, in, that. in 20 minutes, you know, like honestly, like it's, uh, it's we're, we're dynamical systems and, and I, I will, it's, 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 I think it's important to be open to changing your perspective on things. But I think traditionally what we've thought about when we've thought about the role of the coaches is to help the athletes achieve whatever goal it is that they're trying to achieve, right? That's traditionally, if you, if you rewind back in, you know, 20 years ago in my career, that's kind of, all right, that's, that's my goal here. My goal is to try to understand what it is this athlete's trying to achieve and help them towards that. Now that's, there's a lot to that obviously, right? It's, um, you know, uh, what is it that they're trying to achieve first and foremost? So part of it is, is help them towards achieving something secondary to that, or maybe even primary to that is trying to help them figure out what it is that they're actually trying to achieve. So that is now, okay, it's already becoming a little bit complex, right? So it's, 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 I think it's a very difficult question to answer because it is first and foremost, super contextual, but it's also dynamic. It changes because an athlete's purpose or their function or the, what their goals are, what their objectives are, that is also dynamic. And that changes sometimes, you know, you know, by the week, by the month, by the year, whatever, right? So if I'm coaching a 17-year-old, you know, soccer player, they're going to have very different objectives than an, an elite sprinter. But you take, just zoom in on the elite sprinter, and I've got a group of nine elite sprinters. And all nine of those have very, very different objectives, Right. So I have to then work with these nine as individuals, try to figure out what it is that these individuals are trying to get from this sport and then help them achieve that. So then, then we have to dive in on that word help. Like what does help mean? You know, and sometimes it's, it's pushing and prodding and sometimes it's pulling, you know, and sometimes it's motivating. Sometimes it's guiding. Sometimes it's prescribing. Sometimes it's, cajoling and tricking you know what i mean it's it all depends that's where the art of coaching all sort of comes together in trying to help and guide and facilitate an environment in which the athlete can figure out number one what it is they're wanting from the sport number two what it is they're wanting from themselves from the sport and then number three is how to achieve all of that right so it's 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 complex as almost everything is in in sport 
Uh, and as I said, I think that evolves for me and has evolved for me when I started. As I said, it was just, I'm just going to help this athlete get better and get better. Got, getting better was really simple. You know, it was either getting faster, bigger, stronger, just being better at their sport, right? So I started something measurable. Something measurable, right? I was an SNC coach for a long time. So that measurable part was, can I get your power clean up? Can I get your squat up? You know, if you know, in bobsled, it was, you know, I was coaching bobsledders for 20 years. I still am coaching bobsledders. So it's, can we get your start faster? Can we put on more weight? If you're working with football players, can we get you again stronger and bigger? Can we get you faster so you can potentially play your sport better? So that was the, you know, very simple role of me sort of as a younger coach. And that's expanded into something that's much more complex and contextual now. And it's, you know, the, the we'll probably talk about this, but the, the whole system, right? We've got to figure out, you know, if you look at the athlete as part of the system and figuring out what it is that the purpose of the objective of the system is, figure out what all those pieces within it are, how they all interact and, and intertwine and interrelate and all pulling together to try to serve this common purpose. Yeah. But as I said, Part of our role as coaches, we just, you know, we can't ask the athlete, hey, what's your purpose in sport? Uh, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, like a 30-year-old athlete maybe has given that a lot of thought and might have an answer for you, but most wouldn't, right? You can't ask a 16-year-old or a 20-year-old that question. They say, I have no idea what my purpose is. Just get better, right? So it's, it's it, within that is opportunities for you as a coach to work with those athletes, those players, whatever, to try to help pull out and tease out what it is that they can actually get from sport. So the coach as a, as a coach of, uh, you know, 15 year old soccer players has a very different role on a micro sense than a coach of elite sprinters or elite yeah. middle distance runners, so on and so forth. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. It resonates much with, with my own experience. I mean, and we, you know, we work in similar realms in the sense that you work with, you know, individual athletes. I mean, you might have a group of nine sprinters, but track and field, not a team sport in the same way that soccer is, or, you know, basketball is much like the distant runners that, that I coach. And if I think back to when I first got my start, it was like, okay, this is, this is pretty easy to wrap my head around. Uh, you are here, you're a three hour marathoner. And if you run two fifty five in the next one, you've improved. And on some level, yes, you have. Like that is something that is is measurable. And I think a lot of young coaches and athletes themselves, that's for them, that's improvement. Um, or at least in in one form. And that's the only way that they they think about it. And we tend to not think of things systemically. We isolate all of these different variables, but we don't see how they interplay with each other, how they affect you know, one another, what happens if you take something, you know, oh, I know I definitely in my early to mid twenties, when I was first starting to to work with athletes, I definitely did not think in that way. It was, it was very much like, okay, let me, let me just take what I know that's worked for me as an athlete, give it to someone else. And if we see them, you know, make a measurable jump, then we've done our job. We've, we've achieved our goal. And over time that has definitely evolved where I could see the pieces like starting to, you know, come together and then redefining, or at least like taking a broader view on what improvement actually means. Like it can be something in, in, in our sports is something oftentimes that will be, you know, pretty measurable, but it ends up taking on, or I think it should take on 
meaning beyond, you know, just that finding, you know, improvements in something other than just your finish time. Yeah, it's, 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 and it's, it's something that I've kind of changed my mind on a little bit because, you know, it's probably about 10 years ago, people started talking about a significant role of the coach of being as a guide that is outside of what is just happening on the field of play or on the track or whatever. And I never really could get in line with that. That's not what we're taught. That's not what we are expert in. You know, we're not life coaches. We don't have necessarily, we don't necessarily build those skills within our own sort of education system. But what we do are, what we are educated in is all of the other stuff that can make you a better athlete. So for me, it was about that. What can I do to help you become a better athlete? And if you want to become a better human, well, that's on you. You know, I, you know, I might point you towards somebody to help, to help you with that. But I think more and more that, I'm, that I'm, I've been doing this, it's, and I think more and more as well, where people get their identity becomes so tied up with their athletic career that it becomes to the point where it's dysfunctional for them as a human. It's, it, it's harder for me to parse out the separation between the two. And we have to be able to speak to them all as one entire thing, holistic thing, rather than, as you said, this one little piece, this one component part of the system. And rather, rather than that now, what I'm looking at it now is, all right, if, if your purpose, if your objective in this sport as a, an elite sprinter, say you're an elite 400-meter sprinter, and you're trying to figure out more about yourself and push yourself, and you really enjoy the training part of it, you really enjoy the competition environment, you really enjoy traveling the world, you really enjoy sort of coming to the track and socializing with other people with similar goals, but one of those goals for you isn't necessarily to go to the Olympics or make a final at Olympics or make or, or win a medal at an Olympics. Well, that's okay. You know, I can get on board with that as long as we have an agreement around what that objective or the purpose is. Right? Now, if there's a disagreement between it, then it's not going to work. And if it's it's and it can sometimes lead to, and it has in my own career, it can some it it has sometimes led to an overcompromising of what those ideals are, right? Because I'm, I am a quote unquote elite sprint coach and I should be working with quote unquote elite sprinters to help them towards their goal of becoming as an elite sprinter as they possibly can in its most simple sense. Obviously there's a, a bunch of other things that come along with that, but that doesn't mean that every single athlete are on the same path and will, will traverse the same journey. Others are struggling with different things, and it may not be as important for them, especially when you're, when you're talking about an Olympic sport that operates in quadrennials. Mm-hmm. You know, there's three years in between Olympics where many athletes don't really care. You know, they're just, they're just putting in time until the next Olympics comes on. So that's, uh, that's another sort of uh, piece of the complexity here. But, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really deep and challenging question yeah. uh, of the role, you know, and I think that, as I said, it it's changes for every coach or should, but it also changes for every athlete because every athlete's objectives also change throughout their career and even throughout 
a year or even even smaller levels. So we have to respect that. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. And the last thing I'll say on this, where it flipped for me, I don't remember exactly when this was, but it was when rather than looking at how do I help this person improve upon their three-hour marathon or whatever it was and hit 255, we could say, yes, you've improved. It was looking at how this pursuit of competitive running for them fit into the context of the rest of their lives. And that was sort of my putting the foot in the door of thinking about this systemically. Like this is a, this is a, a piece of something much bigger. And there are going to be things that affect that from, you know, this person's professional life and those stresses, their family life, you know, those stresses, um, even with, with amateur athletes, like it's, you know, it's very real and getting to know the athletes on a deeper level beyond just what they did at the track on Tuesday, how their tempo run went on Friday and plugging those numbers into a calculator and what that might predict that they're going to run, you know, for a marathon. But to the point that, that you made, um, it was also in many cases, and I still do a lot of the say educating the athlete on that as well, because I think in my experience, many of them come to me and they just think of it. I'm hiring Mario with this goal of qualifying for the Boston marathon or qualifying for the Olympic trials or breaking three hours, whatever it happens to be. And just looking at it as this isolated piece. And then they realize as we go through the process, and I am definitely trying to help drive it as a coach, because I see that as part of my role now, of looking at it more holistically and helping them to look beyond just whatever, in their mind, this goal that they hired me for. It's like, well, what else can you get out of this? I mean, you were just talking about this a a few minutes ago. It's like, what else can this bring to your life? Um, what habits can we put into place that might even spill over into other aspects of your life? Or what other habits do you have in other aspects of your life that I can take and be like, Hey, let's apply that to this pursuit of running, because I think it's actually going to help you become just as successful in this pursuit as you are, you know, in the boardroom, that type of thing. And I, I mean, for me, like, that's definitely how I've evolved the most as a coach, but I think it's also helped. It's, it's made it more, complex. I mean, it's messier in many, many ways, but when it goes well and you can see that change happen in the athlete besides them just hitting whatever goal it is that they set out to do, um, I think that's really what makes it gratifying and worthwhile and feels like I'm doing a good job. Do you get ever uh, pushback from some of the athletes on that, whereas where they just say, Mario, I just want you to tell me what to do, man. Like, just tell me what to do. Just give me my training. Yeah, all that stuff, I I recognize that it's important. I just want you to coach me as an athlete and that's it. And maybe you see from the outside that there's some, you know, other things that you need to try to tease out. That you know from your experience that they're either avoiding or not interested in for whatever reason. And you know that as a coach, you know, for what should be, quote unquote, uh, for their general health or whatever, mm-hmm. they should you know put a little bit more attention on or pay more more attention to, but they just want you for X. Not all that often, okay. But it has happened, and why I say not all that often, because in my initial conversations with an athlete, that is something that I mm-hmm. am very 
deliberately addressing. I'll tell them, I'll be like, look, if you are looking for me just to send you a workout schedule and occasional feedback on what I think about your data, I'm, I'm not the coach for you. Like it's just th- those people exist and I think they can do a good job, but that's not me. Um, and I'm just very clear about that from the get-go. And that's something that I've had to mature into. I don't think I had that confidence 10 years ago, you know, to say that in, you know, an initial conversation. So that, I mean, solves a lot of those problems, but I've been in those situations where, and this maybe it was prior to being like so clear, clear about it, or it happened after the fact where I'll just keep my mouth shut and, and sort of let things play out. And, and oftentimes, and I'm not saying this in a way to say like I was I was right or or do it in such a way to say that I was right, but I almost have to like let the athlete learn for themselves that it's not something that lives in isolation. That yeah, if you are only sleeping three to four hours a night for weeks on end, it doesn't matter how hard you try in the workout or if you check all those boxes every day, like those pieces just aren't gonna come together. I mean, that's a I think that's a pretty basic example. But I mean, I you know, I can share this because it just happened this week and I'm not going to name names, but I mean, one of my athletes I've been working with for, you know, about a year and a half, um, competitive amateur marathon, or works a very demanding job as a consultant. And I can say this with certainty came into our relationship when we started thinking that she was going to get a training plan that was personalized to her goals and the demands on her time. And I would help her to, to guide through that. And I get an email this week and says, just so you know, you made a significant impact on the choices I made today. One of them was redefining success on my terms. Went to my youngest son's cross-country meet yesterday afternoon in the middle of the workday. It was 45 minutes away. It was jam-packed. Um, but I blew up my workday and I went to the meet, um, you know, had my executive assistant block off my Tuesdays for, you know, the rest of the year. And then the second part was friendship and showing up. Like I got stuck in some bad traffic. Normally this would put me in a miserable mood instead, you know, based on conversations that we had. I called my college roommate who I never call out of the blue. And I'm just trying to give myself, you know, grace about past choices, but put a higher priority on making sure I stay connected with the people in my life. I mean, I could say with certainty, we started our relationship. I don't think she thought she was getting that. But as that relationship has evolved, and I'm just observing, I do a lot of observing. I learned this from my grandfather as a young kid. He spent a lot of the day just sitting on his back porch, observing, watching the world go by, eventually asking people questions. I was like, I think, you know, here's someone who's very driven, but there are some key pieces here that are are missing, I think in general, that will, you know, help her live a more fulfilling life just in general. But I think the byproduct of that is it's actually going to help how she's thinking about this pursuit of competitive running is as well, because she's looking at it as more than just this isolated thing that I do between, you know, six and seven thirty AM every morning, if you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um yeah, I, I guess it goes back to what the what their purpose is, you know, yeah. and, and and as I said, maybe helping them because no one's gonna know exactly what it is, right? You know, I said this is it. 
100%. <laughs> you know, it's always a moving target. I guess, it, I, guess, I guess it's always just supporting them within that journey and understanding, you know, you have a little bit more wisdom than they, and you may be, look, be able to look into the future a little bit where they can't and, and know that this purpose for you, you may think it's this, but in six months, 12 months, 18 months, three years, whatever, Bingo. it will merge into something else. Yeah. 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 Um, That's good. I, I like that. So you just sort of, um, how you frame that as you just sort of, allowed them you just sort of observed and you know you, you see them could have you know they're everything sort of emerges from that observation you know you kind of just you're there to facilitate or to guide but not not to direct right which is one of the things that for me has changed the biggest over the course of my career too right when you're a young you know somewhat inexperienced or immature coach you want to control everything Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can do this, 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 and this, and you add up all these things and it, and it equals this and not understanding the complexity of all this, where you add one, two, three, four, and five, and it doesn't necessarily equal whatever that, that, that adds up to, right? It's almost always something different than that because it is a complex system. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Continuing along these lines in what other ways have you evolved the most as a coach in the near 30 years that you've been doing this? Um, yeah, I mean, it, so the, the, a lot, right. It, for me, um, I've probably become more patient or more patient person with the athletes that I'm working with. And I think that's been really important for me. And I think that stemmed from earlier on in my career, I confused sort of my goal and my objective for the people that I was working with for theirs. Mm. And I, to many extent, I wanted it more than them and I could see it where they couldn't. And uh, I would get very impatient for all sorts of different things and all sorts of different reasons. So I was more, I was much more probably authoritative and more of a director rather than a facilitator or a guide earlier on in my career. And if I, if, if the athlete wasn't responding in the way in which I expected or wanted it, it, and I'm still not the most patient person, but I'm, I'm far more patient with athletes now, but I'm far less patient with the entirety of the industry of the profession. And I, I feel like as a profession of coaching and as an industry of sport performance, we're so much worse than we were a decade ago, two decades ago, three decades ago. And that's really frustrating to me. And that's uh, to the point where it's, it's distracting and it's, it's often getting in the way of me, you know, enjoying uh, my own time in this profession within this industry, because I, I do often get distracted by, you know, what's, what's now being considered as, as good coaching or good sport performance practice and seeing what people are doing and thinking about. And I just think we're going down the wrong track in so many ways. So I've, with, you know, so what's one thing that's sort of involved, evolved for me is much more patient with me as a coach of athletes, much, much less patient as now maybe my role within this industry has changed mm-hmm. from one that's kind of focused on the three to 20 people in front of me to now somebody who's focused more on the entirety of the, of the ecosystem, you know, and trying to impact that ecosystem in some way. So maybe I've just transferred that impatience from, from one population <laughs> to another over the course of 30 years. I don't know. Yeah. Um, the first half of that answer 
doesn't surprise me all that much. In fact, that's the most common answer that I've gotten to that question that I've asked of every coach is just developing patience mm. over time with the people that that they work with. I didn't expect the second half of your answer, that lack of patience with the coaching industry as a whole. And we haven't gotten into it yet in this conversation, but aside from actually coaching elite sprinters and power athletes, I mean, you're the CEO of Altus. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Altus's general mission is to educate coaches. And so you, I think you're probably one of the most qualified people to to talk about this. I'm curious, like, first, what over the last 10 years have you seen in coaching as a profession that has really like ground your gears down and tested that patience and made you, you know, just less patient with the industry as a whole? Yeah, I think it's in line with society as a whole, right? We're becoming more, seemingly more and more disparate. We're, we're seemingly becoming more binary thinkers and seemingly having less respect for, for complexity and nuance and seemingly becoming less interested in moderation, more interested in in the, the poles of things rather than what happen, what's happening in that vast middle. And we're seemingly wanting to think less and just be told more. And I'm, you know, there's, there's fine exceptions and many exceptions, and there's incredible practitioners in sport performance and there's some incredible coaches. So I don't want to say that that ha- hasn't continued. And maybe there's just as many incredible practitioners in sport performance and just as many incredible coaches now as there was 30 years ago. Maybe there's even more. But as the industry has expanded and the entire sport performance industry has expanded significantly over the, the last two to three decades, there's always going to be a dilution of quality, right? For sure. Anything anything that expands in quantity, there's a there's a concomitant dilution of quality, always. So it's maybe it's just this, you know, it's just this ebb and flow. And, you know, a, a generation from now, the quality will have caught up with the quantity. But right now it hasn't. So there's this vast population of people, whether they be coaches or, or sports scientists or what have you, that just want to be told what to do and are not interested in being critical thinkers or asking why they want to do it. Just tell me what to do. That's all they want. And it's, we see this all the time as Altus, right? We're coach educators. And most of our stuff is about the why. Like it's, we're very philosophical, maybe to, uh, you know, our own detriment sometimes. We're probably a little bit overly philosophical and a little bit under applicable with many of the things that we do and many of the stuff that we share out there. And I understand sometimes you do have to tell people just what to do. And just the same with coaches, right? It's the athletes that we're working with, they don't necessarily need to understand why they're doing what they're doing. Some are interested, some aren't. And that's okay, right? We don't have to tell them, we don't have to give them a thesis about why they're doing everything that we're doing every time that we give them something to do. They just, first and foremost, they want, they ha- we have to tell them what to do or guide them into what it is we want them to do. And it's the same with the coaches that we're educating. But there should be, hopefully, some uh, some amount of of curiosity from whether it is an athlete that you're coaching or a coach that you're educating about why they are going to be doing this and i feel like that is really reducing well i know it's reducing it's significantly reducing we see that in some of the surveys we put out we see that in social media every day we see that with our education events that we have it's um 
you know, it's becoming less and less about why and how we do things and more just about just tell me what to do so I can go and do that with my team, with my athlete, with my group, with my whatever uh, on Monday. So that's that's the thing that I'm losing. You know, I, I, I feel like we're we're often sort of fighting this losing battle within this because the way to make money as a coach educator these days is just to sell that just the practical what to do. And that's it. You know, you can just say, do this. And there's a bunch of drills, X drill to do this, X drill to do that, so on and so forth. We're just, I'm not interested in that. So it's harder and harder for us as a, or harder and harder for me as a coach educator and harder and harder for us as a coach education company. So to sort of fight this battle in these waters that are just more interested in, in and, and as, as I said, there's many, many awesome exceptions. And it's, and, and this is where the, you know, my, my initial answer came from. I find myself uh, being more and more distracted by where it's going and being impatient with the, the, um, the, in my mind, the majority of people in the industry where I really should be just focusing on the, the, the vast amount of people that are doing great work and are really interested in why they're doing it. So that's, that's always sort of my, you know, it's, it's me either trying to convert all these people that may not be interested or just focusing on the people that are, you know, and that's, that's, that's been the challenge for me. And it's a continuing challenge. Sometimes I'm successful. Sometimes I'm not. Yeah. I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think the pendulum can swing back in the other direction and coaching as a profession, as an industry can embrace that philosophical side, do more critical thinking, ask deeper questions, or do you think because of the generation that we're in, uh, the social media age that we live in, um, you know, technologies that are developing that it's going to go more toward just, just give me the thing, tell me what to do. I'm not going to question it. Um, I want it to be very prescriptive, so on and so forth. What do you think I'm going to answer that? <laughs> I I don't want to label you, so I, I want to be careful how I how I how I answer this. There's part of me that detects a level of cynicism in how you're speaking about it, and I don't know you that well, but I could see you just getting to a point in five, ten years where you throw up your hands and say, "This is a lost cause." I'm going to go get behind the DJ table and start spinning records again. Uh, I've, I've done what I could do. I'm proud of the work that I have. I worry about the future of this industry, but it's not my problem anymore. Okay. So to answer your question <laughs> is um, in my lifetime, it's not going to change right now. The pendulum is swinging that way with a quite a lot of momentum behind it. And I don't think that the society in which we all exist within is going to change significantly enough within my lifetime where this industry or this ecosystem within the larger society will have, ch- will have a time or chance to respond to it. So, but I do think long term that it will, you know, and, it, and it, might, it might be within my lifetime. It just probably won't be within my coaching time. You know, sure. I've got... You know, I, I'm 54 or whatever in, in, in a couple of weeks. Um, so maybe I'm coaching for one more year. Maybe I'm coaching for another 20, but that's the max, right? I'm not coaching for much more than 20 more years. And it's, I think, within the next 20 years, maybe we're starting to see it go back towards the other end. But also, do we think that this 
um, system, you know, this industry, this profession is continuing to expand or have we seen the maximum expansion? Because if it's continuing to expand, we're still going to see the dilution of quality within it. And it's, it has to stop and then start reducing before we can see this growth of the quality first, right? So it's, um, but I am an optimist by, and it may, may not sound that way, but I am actually an optimist for sure. You know, I do feel like, you know, like, what I don't know, I can't remember what the quote was, but history zigs and zags, but, you know, it does zig and zag in a, in a positive direction, right? It's just, it's, it, it depends on what scale you're looking at history from. So, you know, we focus so much on history being our, you know, here and now and around us, maybe this week or this month or this year, or even this decade. But if we zoom out far enough, we can see that history is zigged and zagged and we're maybe we're just in a bit of a zag right now, but it'll zig back. And, uh, you know, at a larger scale, we'll see that, yeah, it's actually we're still improving as an industry or as a society. Yeah. My last question related to this in your observations, what do you think are going to be the biggest challenges facing coaches over the next one to two decades? Well, the obvious one is is how to incorporate uh, growing um, technologies and uh, the importance of those technologies to society and then how they bleed into what we do. You know, I know there's some um, pessimism maybe around what the coaching profession even looks like. But I, you know, I, I, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm an optimist in that respect. And I think coaches or coaching requires actual people to do it. So I don't think that technology is here and coming to replace us. I think it can actually make our jobs better, easier, more enjoyable, more creative vocations. I think it's going to be a really interesting time that's really impossible, really, to look forward five years because the technologies are are going to, are changing so quickly. But I do think that that's going to be a challenge is how to incorporate these technological advancements into this very, you know, one of the most human of, of vocations, which coaching is right. So that's, that'll be a, that'll be a big one. And I think the other one is what we've already kind of talked about, you know, it's, it's as we continue to fight against societal impact of, of we're just becoming more, you know, where society is becoming more and more and more binary, even though it's becoming more and more diverse. Um, you know, how to, how to uh, stay away from sort of those influences, you know, challenge those influences and actually, actually learn, you know, and not just become these, these, these binary thinkers as, as kind of society is becoming. Yeah. I, I share your sentiments on both of those topics. On the first, as an optimist myself, I can also be cynical from time to time. I believe the cream will rise to the top. So I think with especially thinking about AI and some other technologies, as you said, are, are rapidly developing now and are going to look wildly different five years from now than we probably could ever even imagine. I do think it is going to swing in the favor of good coaches being able to make a career out of it. And I think positively impacting the industry as a whole, because I think if there becomes too many bad coaches, just because 
things expand so much like you talked about. And it's like we see that there's like a lot of, you know, low quality that I think that cream's going to rise to the top and people are going to realize what it takes to, you know, be a good coach or what it's going to take to be able to do that profession sustainably for a long time. I mean, that's my that's my hope anyway. And and that's when I think we'll see the pendulum starting to swing back in the other direction, benefiting the entire industry as a whole. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe not as optimistic as you are from a short-term perspective, but it's, sure. uh, I think we'll get there. I just, I don't see any end in sight to, to um, asking the what questions right now. Yeah. I, I don't know how long it will take, but I do look back at, history and these things like the pendulum does swing back and forth things do happen in cycles and these sort of things um maybe in coaching my my own knowledge of the history isn't that vast but we certainly see it in in other areas where we go through these you know call them low periods and they last for you know a short to a long period of time and then eventually gets back to a better place um and i think it's because you know overall it forces the, the quality to, you know, to improve. Uh, and if it, you know, if it doesn't, then, then I think that industry ends up dying. Uh, and I don't see coaching as an industry dying because I think people need coaches, whether it's in athletics, whether it's in the business world, life coaching, um, you know, you name it, but I, I do think it will be, you know, a profession where the people who are, are really good at it are valued and there will be a place for them. Um, at least that's going to be my, you know, my hope because I want to see it succeed. Yeah, for sure. Like it's, it's. Um, I was just thinking while you were you, you were talking there about sort of what the industry or the coaching profession even is now and where that's going. And as professional sport becomes more and more entertainment based, and as maybe some of the you know traditional amateur sports start to possibly even fade away as they have less and less money. I just wonder where it's going to be. You know, I, re- I really do. So it's maybe there is going to be, you know, a culling of the, of the entirety of the profession anyway, as, at least in the sports world, maybe not necessarily, yeah. as you said, in the industrial world. But yeah, it's, it's, it's something that maybe, uh, maybe I haven't thought as deeply or enough on as I, as I could or should about what's you know what this what this world is going to look like in 10 or 20 years you know we you know we know already that professional sport is just entertainment now i mean it's changing so much and what you know where is even us college sport going high school sport where there's more and more and more money being pumped into these systems that it's becoming more and more about entertainment less and less about what the traditional values and you know, purposes of, of doing what we're doing even began, you know, even as little as 10 years ago, it's, it's, it all comes back again to determining what the purpose of the system is and then understanding that the system will navigate itself towards that purpose, right? If it doesn't, it'll just die. It'll just fade away. So yeah, it'll be an interesting next sort of 15, 20 years, I think. Yeah. To pivot off of this in the time that we have left. I have a few very specific things that I want to talk to you about. And I, I want to start with systems thinking as a whole. I mean, in, in my observations and following your work for many years now, um, through your 
old blog, Macmillan Speed, but even to this day, like through the weekly emails that you send out through Altus, I'm a member of Altus Connect. I mean, there's just a ton of great video resources there. You know, I've watched you give other interviews, talk to, you know, athletes, many of the other coaches that are involved with, with Altus. I mean, systems thinking to me seems to be, you know, kind of at the, the heart of how you approach coaching and working with athletes. And it may have been on the podcast that you did with Brad and Steve for the growth equation. You went into some detail about this. And I believe there was a a follow-up email that you had sent out um, a week or two later. It was about embracing a systems approach in athlete development or performance and just the elements involved in that. And if I'm remembering correctly, in the conversation with Brad and Steve, there were four elements. It was the training, it was nutrition, it was recovery and mental health. And then I read some other stuff that you put out and there were actually like two more in there. And it was, I think, just social and ethical alignment and environment and education. So I'd love to just start talking broadly about systems thinking and when that was introduced to you and how you've kind of refined your own approach to that over the last several years. Yeah, it, it's, it dominates everything that I think about and how, you know, probably more importantly, how I think about it now. Um, and, it, and it seems to be the topic of conversation or at least the sitting back behind the topic of conversation with almost every conversation I have with everybody about anything. Um, it's the lens in which I look at the world. So it's if we look at, you know, where when we started as coaches, we tend to focus on the component parts and try to learn a little bit more about this component part. And then we, then we see that this component part is also important. And we learn about that. And we talked about, you know, going down these rabbit holes and you learn about nutrition, you learn about therapy, you learn about, you know, model learning or biomechanics and you learn about, you know, the programming or whatever you pick your, pick your physiology or any of your, any of your ologies or whatever. And, and it's, it's a very sort of reductionist way of looking at the world, right? You think about these, these things and you may become expert or really knowledgeable about these things, but that's not how the world works. World, the world works is in the interaction of all of these things and then how all of these things come together to serve a common purpose, most importantly. So it's uh, as I you know, sort of matured as a coach, that's where I went with things, right? We talked about, you know, right at the very start of this conversation about creativity and creativity being, seeing the connections between sometimes what feel like potentially very disparate things, like very different things within the system that have nothing to do with each other. But we know as coaches now and experienced coaches, yeah, they do. They really do have, you know, important things to, to do with each other. And that's, one of the things that, that brings me back to, you know, 1995 when I met Dan Paff, one of the first things that I remember that Dan told me was coaching is like spinning plates. You know, you've got all these, and I, I don't know if spinning plates is even a thing now, like it used to be, right? <laughs> you have all these long, tall sticks and plates on them, and this guy trying to keep all these plates spinning. And it's like you have to keep the plate spinning, but also understand what the you know, rotational velocity of each plate was. So you could jump over to this plate, then you go to this plate. And when one plate crashes, it tends to take everything else down with it, right? And he said, that's what coaching is. You've got all of these different things. 
And you have to ensure that you understand what they're all doing and how they're all interacting in space and time. So you need to know about therapy. You need to know nutrition. You need to know supplementation. You need to know biomechanics, motor learning, pedagogy, physiology, you know, neurology, all of this stuff. This is all of this stuff. You don't need to be a domain expert in any of it, but you need to know a little bit about all of it and how that all kind of sort of that whole system interrelates and interacts to serve the common purpose of X, whatever X is, you know, and in most of the, uh, of our lives, it's about becoming a more healthy and, and more, uh, higher performing athlete. Right. So that's, that's now how I look at almost everything. And it's funny that you, you brought this up. This is a conversation I had with my new athlete group yesterday. It was not a new athlete group. It's the athlete group. We just started training last week. We, uh, we, we have these weekly conversations we call Altus U, where we talk about different things, right? And it could just be looking up at videos and we're just watching, you know, looking at, you know, mechanics. It could, we, could be we're talking about nutrition or supplementation. Or it could be just talking about training or the next cycle that's to come. Well, generally what I do to kick off these conversations with the athletes is introduce the health and performance system, right? Like what is it? That how are you going to reach your goals this year, assuming your goals is to be go to the Olympics or make the Olympic final or win Olympic medal? And is it and most of them and, and at, at this point, the, the athletes that I coach, it's they won't answer it this way. But if you if you if you ask a, a, the, your typical college athlete, they'll say, well, I'm going to train really hard and I'll, I'll, I'll put some focus on my recovery and my nutrition. And that might be about the extent of their system. Right. So we have a conversation about not just those three things, but also about the, the mental and the emotional resilience piece, right? Nutrition and fueling and how that fits into it all. The social and the ethical alignment, as you said, sort of the community, the connection, you know, so their friends and their family, their ethics, all of this, all of this stuff is really important, right? You know, physical training is the obvious one. You know, we, we, we don't need, we don't need to really talk too much about that one. We, we assume you guys are going to come to the track and train hard. We assume that we know what we're doing here. We assume that, you know, we're good coaches. And so that's kind of okay. You know, we don't need to focus too much more on that. The recovery and the regeneration. So we'll spend a lot of time talking about that and how that interacts with all of these other things. So, you know, how you sleep, you know, your passive recovery, your active recovery, your general health, so on and so forth. And finally, the, the sixth one that, that I added in is the environment you know, so where technology comes into this, uh, where your outside of athlete life comes into this. Do you only see yourself as an athlete or do can you, do you have the ability to see yourself as a human outside of that? And maybe what you could be doing if you weren't an athlete. These are questions you need to be thinking about, right? What would I do if I'm not doing this? And what do I see maybe in my future if I'm not doing this? So, you know, I'm not just this person that comes to the track every day and goes to the weight room and trains. What else could I do? What can I do outside of this to kind of educate myself into becoming a more, you know, fulfilled, open, holistic human being, right? So when I first started thinking about this, it was kind of, I came up to with four because, and I think, you know, I think I've been thinking about systems thinking probably since the late 90s is probably when I first first came across it and, it, and it its relationship in sport. And I think it was Mel Siff and the old super training um, forum, 
where I first uh, found out about it and said, okay, these, all these things matter. It's not just how you train, but all of these other things also really matter as well. And then maybe it's the mid O's or so when, was it David Sedaris, you know, the author, talked about the four burner model, the four, four burner theory, right? Where it was friends, um, family, um, your work, and your health, right? I think those were the four. And, he, and basically what he says, if you want to be super successful, you can really only do a good job of two of them at one time. You can yeah. be successful and probably do three, but you're not going to be super successful. Two of those have to fall apart a little bit. So you've got these four burners that are, that are important to your life, friends, family, work, and, um, and your health. Now, if you're really going after your work, then know, just know that. Two of those other ones have to fall apart a little bit. Now, and then, and then I think it was uh, was it James Clear that wrote about that as well, maybe you know, two thousand ten ish. And and I just, man, this isn't it, man. Like that's not right. That is not right. That's being overly perfectionist on one or two of these things. And I think if you do that, as what they're saying is, you're overly focusing on worth on work, sorry, or and or and maybe one other of those burners. These other two things, they do fall away for sure, but it doesn't have to be like that. What a systems theory actually says, you know, a good systems theory is that you're thinking about all of these things, how they all interact and just doing a good enough job on all of them that what emerges from the interaction is elite performance, right? So these are my four, physical training, uh, the fueling, the mental, emotional resilience, and then the recovery and regeneration. And I was actually talking to a bunch of people about this. I said, it is, and I wanted, to, I wanted to present on this more and start talking about this more in a practical way that people could understand rather than just this big philosophical thing. And so I started filling it out a little bit more. And that's when I added, yeah, we know that connection and belonging is really important, right? So that's got to be in there somewhere because right now it's not. Okay, so where does that fit? Community, you know, that's really important. Ethics, you know, all of this, friends and family, that's really important. That continuing education part of it, the outside, the, the athletic arena part is really important. Technology and, you know, the training environment, all of this we know is important. It doesn't fit within this model at the time. So I added these, I added these two other two things, right? This social and ethical alignment. And, and I, I could, you know, I could change the, 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 the names of these you know, tomorrow. I don't know yet. But, and, and, the, and the sixth one, education and environment. So it's, uh, those are the six. And for me, as I said, to just sort of bring it back to where we started is how all of these interrelate and interact are much more important than any one of them as a singular piece, right? And what I try to get across to the athletes, and I miss, this, it feels like in such a, a profound way that it takes the pressure off of many of them. You don't have to be perfect in any of these. In fact, I don't want you to be perfect because we know from that four burner thing, remember, that if you're trying to be perfect in one or two of them, or even just one of them, two of them have to be almost shut off, but it's not a burner on off. It's a dial. So let's just dial each of these up to six, seven, eight. Where, where are we right now? Can we get to a seven out of 10 on all of these six things? Can we, and are we, are we already there? Oh, great. Okay. Can we just improve a little bit? Can we get up to an eight out of 10 on all of these different things? And then can we, okay, are we a six here? Okay. Can we put some strategies in place to try to get this six up to a seven? 
this one's a nine and this one's a six over here. Okay, how do we get this six up to the nine? And maybe that pulls that nine down to an eight, but that's cool because it's understanding that the interaction, the interrelatedness of all of this stuff is what matters. And, then, and you know, as I said, just taking that pressure away, it's, it's, there's two things that, that, that comes to mind when I talk about this, what I've, I've read quite a lot on is the Herbert Simon stuff on satisficing, right? That's, you know, just knowing what's enough, basically, you know, that's, that's good enough. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of research around that. That's really cool that I went into a deep rabbit hole on many years ago. And then there's, um, there's the good enough, who's it? Donald, Donald, the British guy, Donald Win, Winnicott, I think. Donald Winnicott, the good enough mothering, right? It's, it's like 1940s, 1950s, maybe 30s, something like that uh, in, in, in Great Britain. And basically the, the principle was that the good enough mother provides just good enough care and attention to the children, but not perfect. Doesn't try to be perfect because that good enough mother allows the space and time for this healthy psychological development of the child, right? Because the idea being that there's these small failures, quote unquote, in caregiving, in our respect, in coaching, the child would learn become, become more independent and more resilient, right? So there's, there's, there's lessons within this good enough is good enough, as well as the Herbert Simons satisficing stuff that we try to get across to all of the athletes, but not just the athletes, but now to all of the coaches that we talk to about as well. Because we tend to, as, as I said, you know, it's super easy to just to focus on one thing. We can be, we feel like we can, yeah, I'll learn a lot about that. That's really easy. The, the easy bit is learning. That's really easy. Diving into a rabbit hole is really, really easy. Trying to understand how it fits into all the other stuff is the hard bit. So let's, let's focus more on that the interactions, the interrelatedness than the, just the specific rabbit holes themselves. Sorry, that was a bit of a ramble, man. <laughs> no, that was <laughs> epic and awesome and could be a standalone clip <laughs> on its own. So I want to thank you for that. But even beyond that, just putting this stuff out there, because again, I think the first time I heard you talk about it in this kind of detail was on the podcast with Brad and Steve and then dug into you know further writing. And for me, it gave language to ideas and concepts that I had observed in my own practice. I just didn't have the language for them. I thought of them as puzzle pieces that I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. all these different pieces have to, you know, fit together to, you know, form something whole. But I mean, you helped me to just take that a step further. And it's like, okay, well then that's a static thing. This is a dynamic process of being a, an, an athlete. And doesn't really stop. And I like the dial analogy of like turning things up and down. And I mean, you know, with a lot of athletes that I work with, they're very type A, hard charging type of people. They want to be, you know, the best mom. They want to be the best athlete that they can be. They want to be the best employee that they can be. They're trying to be a 10 out of 10 on everything. And the, this is part of getting to know someone and conversations that I have and understanding how this piece of, you know, the pursuit of competitive running fits into their life. And I, I tell them all the time, I'm like, look, if you are great at one of those things, something else is, is going to suffer. Like it, as you just described, like that it's just inevitable. You can't be firing on all these cylinders all the time. It's, we're human beings. It's just, it's just not possible. But you know, if you're consistently good, I'd rather have you be consistently good at all of these things and have, you know, balance in that way 
in your life for a long time than to be occasionally great. Um, cause if you're occasionally great at, at those things, like there's, there's just going to be these highs and these lows and that's just not sustainable, you know? So, so something's going to give there. And I mean, I'm only the coach. I, I, I try to stay out of the way as much as I can, but it's like, that's sort of the, the guidance I want to give people. So I, I definitely borrowed this from you since I heard you talk about it and have read more into it. It just, um, again, gave, I think a better language to what I had seen and what I was trying to work toward. And I mean, just even in the last, you know, call it six months or so, I don't even think it's been, you know, that long. It's helped me to have better conversations with my athletes and articulate exactly this point that I'm trying to get across. And then they can see it and they understand they're like, Oh, okay. And, um, you know, it's like, it's like knocking down that wall of, okay, I've got to be perfect at all of these things, or I've got to be like the the best at all of these things. Cause anytime I've had someone try to do that, like there's very deep levels of, of frustration, you know, in involved. And I do think like, you know, to your point, like, um, these things are, I think they're going to evolve over time. There might be times when you are, you know, you're going to be the 10 out of 10 mom and you might only be you know, the six out of 10 athlete. And I think that's going to be, you know, okay. But the closer that you can kind of bring those things in alignment where it's like, you're a, you know, Mark Coogan, who's coaching new balance Boston, he talks about these B plus workouts. But I think if you can just kind of be like a B plus person across all of these, um, you know, different things, I think, you know, in the long term, you know, that's really where you're going to see, um, you really realize, your potential in, in all of these different domains. Yeah. I think you hit upon an important point there, right? And this is, it's not about being, having all of these things in the system. So let's say there's six component parts, these six major component parts in the system. It's not about having each of them eight of 10, eight out of 10 all the time. It's understanding that sometimes your physical is going to be a six. It might even be a four. Maybe you just got hurt and the physical sucks for a while. That's okay. Like it's very dynamic. Oh, things are going to be moving all of the time. The, 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 the lesson here is that it's all interrelated and it's all important and we have to focus on all of it. And I think sometimes you just get overly focused on one and just forget about this. And that plate just falls. And that when that plate falls, it knocks over the other stick and that's that plate falls. And then everything is now chaos and we've got a broken dysfunctional system. So it's understanding that our goal here is to get all of them kind of eight out of 10 ish or so, like good enough, but understanding too, that sometimes there's going to be times in a week and a month and a year or whatever, or in a lifetime where it just might be, this one's a little bit depressed and that one might be a little bit up. That's okay. It's just being, it's just being responsive to the, to, you know, to our, our dynamical system that we live in. We've got to wind this one down. Last thing that I want to talk to you about, I did not forget, is coffee. It is a passion of mine. I know it's one of your many obsessions. And I think from my research, and as I understand, a relatively recent obsession for you. It's not something that you necessarily grew up with. But I'm curious, when did you start getting into coffee? And I mean, let's just be honest, kind of snobby about it. Oh, I'm I'm a hundred percent proud coffee snob. <laughs> I don't think there's a snob is a it's seen as a bad word. It's not snob. Just means that you appreciate the goodness in this thing, whatever that thing is. Right? You should be a snob. We should be snobs in all things. So it's I was a tea guy growing up, and I hated coffee. Like I didn't even drink coffee. I didn't really like the smell of it. 
But my relationship with it was it with Jeff's was with crap coffee. You know, people mm-hmm. would just drink whatever it is. In Canada, it was Tim Hortons, and you know, in England, it was whatever trash coffee was around. Coffee wasn't good. I had no, I had no understanding of what good coffee could be. And then in 2011, when I was in, living in London, I was living with uh, a British and Australian Paul Volter. So one was Steve Hooker, the other was St- uh, Steve Lewis. Uh, and they were both coffee snobs, proud coffee snobs. Uh, they had a very nice, expensive uh, espresso machine and a very nice, expensive grinder. And they introduced me to it said, you know, you got to try coffee. I said, man, I don't like coffee. I don't like it. I like tea. Mm. I like green tea. I said, no, you haven't had good coffee. You trust me. You're going to like this. So one day I said, all right, I'll try it. So Steve, or one of the Steves, I think it was Hooker, um, made me a flat white. I said, oh, that's pretty nice. That's, that's actually really nice. And I, but I'm not, I'm not a big lover of milk, right? So I says, all right, I, I'm going to try something next time, but it's not going to be a flat white. It's going to be a little bit less milk. So the next day he made me a macchiato. I said, all right, that's, that's more my, my style. I'm really digging this now. I, like, I, I can now taste the complexity and the, the smoothness of the espresso. And then the next day I had an espresso. And I've had a minimum of two espressos every single day since then. And every single one of them has been top-notch because I – I, I can't, like I physically cannot have a bad coffee and I'm now 100% addicted and I may not have made a lot of sense today because I'm trying to actually reduce my coffee intake. I'm, I'm at three a day, right? I have one at 6 a.m. just after I get up. I have one at 7 a.m. and I have one at the end of my training day. So like between two and three and that's what I have every day. They're all du- du- double espressos and I've been, that's been sort of the the, the schedule for the last you know, years, but I feel like it's too much. Like I'm feeling a little jittery. I'm not sleeping as well as I could mm. be, should be. So I'm trying just to go one and one now. Um, so I, I'm, I went into this conversation today with just two double espressos rather than three, but uh, I've really, really enjoyed just, you know, it's good coffee is a hobby. It's not just, I appreciate good, good coffee. Like it is a legit hobby. Like you learn as much about coffee as as you, you as you want to know you know all the different uh, methods you know the different brewing methods the different ratios the different uh, 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 you know different coffees whatever different uh, espresso machines so on and so forth like it's a legit hobby that's you know just like my DJ and this cost me thousands of dollars <laughs> you know but I dig it man I love it I really do well I, I appreciate that as a lover of craft in any form that it takes I mean there's a reason they call it Crafts coffee. Uh, mm. I'm with you on on all of that. I am not purely an espresso guy, but like you, I did not enjoy coffee growing up. My parents drank it, and I couldn't stand the smell of it. I definitely didn't want to taste it. And I was working in a running shop in Westboro, Massachusetts. I was the manager, and we would have our reps come in. And there was a cafe next door, and the reps would always come in and say, "Hey, let's go next door and grab a coffee." And I, I would always say, I don't, I don't drink, you know, I don't drink coffee. Maybe I'll get a lemonade or something like that. Um, but I realized like that was my ticket to take a break from the store. So I would, I would go over there and the only way I could tolerate it at first, this is just drip coffee is I would pour in quite a bit of milk. And then I remember this, I'm almost embarrassed to say it. I would take packets of Splenda and pour (laughs) it in to, to sweeten it up. And, you know, fast forward, I mean, this is, uh, probably 2000, six or so, you know, fast forward sometime to later that year, Keith Kelly, previous guest of 
this podcast, fantastic runner, was working for Reebok at the time. And he invited me to Reebok headquarters in Canton, Massachusetts. At least that's where it was then. And we went to the cafeteria and he saw me preparing my coffee. And Keith is the biggest coffee snob still to this day that I know. Maybe you'll overtake him in that. I think the two of you would have a lovely conversation over it. And he says, what are you doing? I was like, I'm making my coffee. He's like, and he's an Irish guy. He's you know, got a brogue to him. He's like, that's not coffee, mate. And I was like, what, what do you, what do you mean? I was like, well, what is it? He's like, no, that's shite. Uh, and I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? He's like, drink it black. And I was like, no way I can't drink it black. He's like, you just have to trust me on this. And so I drank coffee black for the first time. I've never put anything in my coffee since yeah. that day. And I remind Keith of it every time that I run into him and, you know, fast forward, I guess, 15 or so years at, this point, um, I don't have an espresso machine, but I hand grind my own beans every morning. I am very particular about what beans I have. I watch the temperature of my kettle. And if I take a sip of bad coffee today, I'll just throw it out. I won't even bother <laughs> drinking it. So I, anyway, I like a lot about you, but I appreciate your uh, love of craft uh, and specifically in the form of, of music and coffee. I think that's a great place to round out this conversation. This has been awesome. Uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. I'd love to do another round at some point, whether it's for the podcast or even um, offline. But Stu McMillan, thank you so much for joining me on the Morning Shakeout podcast. My pleasure, man. I really appreciate it. Good chat. All right, that's it for this one. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. If you could, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into this from. It means a lot to me, and it helps new listeners to discover the show. Also, a big thank you to my annual partners, Tracksmith, New Balance, Precision Fuel and Hydration, and Gooder for making it possible. Check out themorningshakeout.com slash partners to take advantage of some of the discount codes and special offers that are available exclusively to readers and listeners of The Morning Shakeout. Before we go, I'd like to give a couple more quick shout-outs. The first to John Summerford, who has edited and produced every episode of the podcast since we launched it in late 2017. He's the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. The second goes to Chris Douglas, who is my right-hand man and helps manage partner relationships. And last but not least, Nicole Bush, who gives me a hand with social media content strategy and creation and is my co-host for Training Talk Thursday, which you can tune into on Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Morning Shakeout's Instagram account, which you can find at The AM Shakeout. And that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.